please feel free to ignore my large teddy bear in the background. This is a story that will require a different conversation, but hopefully my nursing school buddy Sophia will appreciate that Mr. Bear has made an appearance. Um, today I want to talk a little bit about, well, first of all, I guess I should introduce myself. Uh, most of you who are following the podcast have never seen me and don't know much more than my voice. So my name is Ian. I am a critical care nurse and a nurse researcher studying and essentially discussing research methods as applied to nursing research and clinical health sciences. Uh, my podcast is called Clinical Appraisal. I have been doing that podcast since 2018 and have been engaged with the nursing research ever since. And now I operate both as a clinical nurse as well as a nurse investigator through my own doctoral work, as well as as a co-investigator with several different research groups, both within nursing and medicine and other fields, particularly in pain science. So today I want to talk a little bit about the idea that some of my friends who are also in the doctoral program in nursing have that and I think this is pervasive, it's not just my institution or with my friends. They have this idea, as a student, you have this idea that you're going to become, how do I want to phrase it? You're going to take these courses, and let's just say it's a regression course, and then you'll be endowed with the wonderful skills of being able to conduct and interpret a basic linear regression analysis. And maybe that's true. But if you reflect back on any of the courses you've had in the past, what typically tends to happen is that you take the class and you learn some material and most of it you forget shortly thereafter and almost none of it you can apply in any meaningful way. And most of what you actually learn, you learn by doing. And for my listeners who are, or in this case, my viewers who are nurses, we know this all too well. Physicians as well. When you're a resident and then you become an attending, I've heard innumerable attendings say things like, I didn't learn to become a doctor in medical school. I learned as a resident. Okay. Well, in nursing, we say the same thing. We say, nursing school doesn't, I actually think in nursing, it's a little more uncharitable, to be honest. But in nursing school, we say things like, I didn't learn anything in nursing school. But it's, in part, it's the same problem that medical students have. You try to pack too much information into a short period of time. Let's say it's two years or four years, depending on your undergraduate program in nursing, or nine or 10 years, if you've gone for your PhD. The long and short of it is, you if you think back to the courses you've taken, the vast majority of the time, you learn some of the information only to forget it thereafter and don't know how to apply it. But then, as nurses, we go out to the field, the hospital, let's say, for many of us, most of us, in fact, we apply that knowledge and realize we actually don't know a lot at all. 
especially if you're in a high acuity environment and there's a lot riding in your clinical judgment, which brings us into a whole other discussion eventually of like, what is clinical judgment? How, is it, how does it develop? And how can we measure it truly? Which is a research project I'm working on with uh, Dr. Janet Monagle and Dr. Phil Dickinson and some other folks at NCSBN. Um, but the point of this is to say it doesn't develop by sitting in a classroom. I fervently believe this. And I don't know that many people would disagree with that. The trouble is sitting in a classroom is the prerequisite for being able to so-called, or so to speak, pass the bar and enter the profession. So in some ways, it almost feels like going through the educational process to do these things is just a hurdle to get past. But why do I even bring this up? The point of this is to say that many of my colleagues in the doctoral program, as students in particular, although not always, they, I think, have this sense that if they just take another class, they'll be this much closer to being the researcher they've always dreamed of being or of being the instructor that they've always wished that they would become or what have you. And that at some point there will be this threshold that they'll cross and after they've crossed that threshold, they will be the thing that they strive to be. And I am, I think, disillusioned of that idea for a variety of reasons, not least of which is because my academic trajectory had me working as a research coordinator and eventually a clinical research project director prior to beginning my doctoral training. And having done that, and then working my way up to data manager and biostatistician, what I learned was that you can take a class on regression all you want, but if you don't understand how to manipulate data frames, and if you don't understand how to work with missing data on the ground, and if you don't know how to let's say, do basic coding in R or SAS, which doesn't require a lot, uh, or even in Python, which you can do, you know, you can program in Jupyter Notebook an extraordinarily simple linear regression equation and get, I mean, powerful results from a decent data set, but you have to know how to set up that data set before you can actually run that project. So what's my point? My point is school will set you up with the kind of fundamentals, the basics. You can take a class on regression and you can learn some of the fundamental key components. But my assertion is that you will never be an expert on applying regression until you apply regression and you will screw up, and that is expected. And as you screw up, you will learn. And as you learn, you will grow. And that's how you become the person that you intend to be, the professional, in this case, that you intend to be. There is this idea 
that there's this magical threshold that occurs as a function of studying in classes, but I would contend that the threshold, if there is such a magical threshold, has almost no relation to your taking classes, except to say that you've gotten some basic understanding. But most of what I have learned about data science, for example, as a, as a single example, uh, regression, has come through the application of regression and then screwing it up, and then using Google to figure out how I can unscrew it up. <laughs> and did I end up having to resort back to thinking of some of the material I learned in a formal classroom to be able to make sense of what I was Googling? Yeah, of course. You know, when they say they, in any individual out in the population who Googles their symptoms, as a healthcare provider, we tell people, don't Google things about this, you'll just be freaked out. And it's not because Google can't be helpful. It's that it's most likely not gonna be helpful to someone who's untrained and in this case, we mean untrained by not having gone through nursing or medical school or something like that. But we could say has not worked in a hospital long enough in a sophisticated enough role to be able to make sense of some of these things. That's actually not a particularly nuanced argument to be making, but just suffice to say for now, I think what most people mean by that is you're not trained to make sense of what you're Googling. That's fair. But it's not like Google's the problem. <laughs> It's that we're not trained to understand it. So is it the case that if you have background instruction in regression that you can't Google something when you screw up and understand what you've screwed up better than if you didn't have that class? Yeah, I think you probably, I think that's a, a decent argument anyway. But if you only have the class and you never apply it, you don't get to call yourself an expert on regression. And if you have one class on regression, which you could, I mean, there are volumes and volumes, library shelves fulls, full of books on linear and nonlinear regression techniques. And if you think, as some people do think, that you're going to take one graduate level class in regression techniques and suddenly you're going to understand regression, I think that's silly. In the same way that in nursing school you take, and this is another thing that hits home for me because it's relevant to my professional life as well, but I know other people who have become pediatric nurses will definitely agree with me on this, if you have gone to nursing school, you've taken pediatrics. But if you work as an adult nurse and you've never worked in peds, tell me you understand pediatrics because of your one pediatrics class. What do you remember about pediatrics? Let's say you had a baby that you had to take care of tomorrow. Would you remember, I mean, maybe you'd remember that they have fontanelles that are supposed to be soft and flat, but would you remember much else beyond that? I mean. It's such a complex world where having one class, the most you could say that would be charitable about that in terms of your development as a nurse is that it primes you with some very fundamental ways of thinking about, <clears throat> about pediatrics that perhaps you'd be able to expand on that baseline 
I, I hesitate to say baseline understanding because it doesn't feel like understanding. And having trained in peace, I can tell you, it, I didn't feel like I understood it. And I had good teachers in pediatrics. One of my primary instructors for my pediatrics class in undergrad was a pediatric nurse practitioner who trained at Yale and is brilliant. And in fact, she's the head of our IRB actually now. Jess, if you're listening, you were a fabulous peds teacher, but you and you would know this more than anybody, but you can't teach what a peds nurse has to know in one semester in undergraduate nursing programs. And that is part and parcel of my point, which is that there is no magical threshold. You have to fail in order to succeed. And the way that you fail is you have to try. And it's scary because you feel like an imposter, especially as a doctoral student. And part of the reason you feel like an imposter is there's nobody else in the world doing what you're doing. You are the only person, you and maybe your mentor, but sometimes they don't have enough bandwidth to pay as close attention as you think they do to what you're doing. You're the only person who really knows what you're doing. And that is simultaneously the most exciting part of being a doctoral student, but it's also the scary part because there's a lot riding on you as an intellectual and we already suffer from imposter syndrome. So feeling like an imposter, delving into a world that's comp- that's complex and is challenging and exists at the furthest edges of our intellectual understanding. The whole purpose of a PhD is to uncover or discover something that nobody else knows. It's the idea that you're generating new knowledge from old methods or generating new methods to find new knowledge or test new ideas. And that inherently puts you in a place of discomfort. And once you get to a place where you understand that discomfort's not going away and that you will have to find a way to deal with that and still apply yourself to whatever problem consumes you and whatever you're trying to accomplish in your program, eventually you'll still have to go outside your comfort zone to try something you will ultimately fail at until you succeed. Because you can't, I mean, everybody who succeeded at something has ultimately failed several times prior to that that success. So what's my point? I'm belaboring it. I'm being loquacious. But ultimately, the idea that, that you can take these courses and be imbued with some fundamental knowledge of how to pursue research at the doctoral level, that that's going to somehow lead to this magical threshold that you're going to cross and suddenly have all the things in your back pocket to use when you need them is silly. And then it goes further than this because suppose you graduate, you are now Dr. So-and-so, you leave the ivory tower of academia, maybe you go someplace else in academia, or maybe you go become a clinical nurse scientist somewhere, or maybe you join the industry and somebody says to you somewhere along the line, hey, uh, PI, 
XYZ, PI for those who don't know is principal investigator. You're the lead researcher someplace. I want you to design a study to test whatever. And you think to yourself, absolutely, I'm the PI. I'm the scientist. I'm the investigator. I can do that. But then you think, what method would I use to evaluate this? And then, despite not automatically knowing the method, I have to really think about this. This is actually a complex question because in your classes, you're not given complex questions. Typically, you're given questions that are already solvable. But when you're working as a PhD trained investigator, you're working on questions that are not immediately solvable. And in some cases, feel totally unsolvable. And I think part of the, I don't know, part of the creativity, and that's part of the excitement of it, of being an investigator, is that you get to work hard to learn how to answer questions. Ultimately, the idea is that you are the one who can figure out how to design studies to test or, you know, theories or come up with new ideas. And so ultimately you think, okay, how am I going to test this? How am I going to design this project? And then you still have to think, oh, how now, how do I analyze that project? And you always have the option and you should of incorporating epidemiologists or biostatisticians or statistical analysts or whatever, somebody to help you figure out how you would put those data to good use, and then how they might best analyze those later. But you still have to have some understanding of what you would do. And despite that, even if you come up with a good plan, you're going to have to teach yourself how to do it when the project is done. Because in school, maybe you have one regression class if you're lucky, and maybe you have one quantitative methods study design course, and then maybe you have one class on, if you're extremely lucky, structural equation modeling or something like that, but then you get out and somebody somewhere along the line asks you to conduct a study that you did not take a class on, which will 100% happen, and it will happen over and over and over and over again. Suppose that most of your dissertation work was using multiple regression techniques, and after having learned all you could learn about linear combinations of, you know, beta weights or something, now you have to go learn latent growth curve analyses. So, or like growth mixture modeling or something. And that entails this whole world of latent variable analysis or latent class analysis or, you know, like the idea of rates of change in these latent models, like suddenly you're doing this thing that you're like, how did I get here? I didn't study this. And yet you're the investigator. And there are so few PhDs in nursing that, and there are so many nurses and so many nursing research related questions that have never been answered before, that ultimately the idea that you're only going to be working in the space you have expertise in is laughable. And that means you're always going to feel like an imposter. And even if the day comes in school where you feel like you've met this secret magical threshold that you have garnered some level of expertise and you no longer feel like a total imposter occurs, 
that whole problem will reoccur again. Now, why do I bring this up? Partly, I bring it up because I, I have some colleagues who are amazing, brilliant, wonderful, unbelievably smart colleagues. And one of the things I hear is, like, I, I'm not ready to write a grant. I'm too early in the process of my education. And that could be true for some people. Um, it might not be, depending on their intellectual readiness, their maturity as a, a scholar and a thinker, etc. But to their credit, it could be the case that they're not ready yet. But they will eventually be. And I think at least this is my personal experience, that being ready happens much earlier on than people typically give themselves credit for. And a good mentor will notice sooner rather than later and push them a little bit harder than they believe that they're prepared for. And it feels uncomfortable. I'll give you an example. When I was in my first PhD program under the tutelage of this guy, named Robert LaForge, who is a brilliant behavioral epidemiologist, I would be in his office for two hours at a time, and he would just talk at me about residual variances and linear regression. And I had virtually no idea at the time what he was talking about. I was young. I was, I had other things to do. I was busy. I was a TA. I had to go grade assignments for undergraduate stats students or undergraduate psychology students who were taking intro stats. And it was, you know, it was a good time, but I was, I was over it. I was like, I got to get out of here and I'm not prepared for this. I have no idea what this guy's talking about. Well, it turns out that I was just on the precipice of understanding and his conversations, although in the moment I didn't necessarily understand every minutia detail, I understood enough that the next time I learned a little bit more about that topic it all assimilated and accommodated in my brain in a way that I did not expect. And I think in part is due to his being at the edges of my understanding with me, like not too far from where I was, but just far enough where I had to struggle to keep up. And that space is uncomfortable because it keeps you on the edge of your seat. You are literally at the, at the outer rim, the boundary, the horizon of your understanding. And it's disconcerting. It doesn't feel like a place of stability because it's not. And that's good because that's how you grow and learn. And that's how you'll develop into a real scientist. Not to insinuate that I'm a real scientist because of it, but I do think it has profoundly impacted my ability to think and my ability to feel uncomfortable in my own imposter syndrome, but not change my location or my destination as a function of it. At the risk of being, I don't know, unintentionally um, messy in my thinking here, let me just back up and say, there's a uh, developmental psychologist, a famous developmental psychologist, um, Vygotsky, who came up with the idea, the brilliant idea of 
the zone of proximal development. And the zone of proximal development in the context of human development for those nurses who, who are listening who had to take human development across the lifespan as a prerequisite for nursing school, you might remember in child development, you know, children's language when they are nine, ten years old, according to Jean Piaget, they were not able to think in terms of very abstract ideas. But there are not these discrete stages exactly that we develop through, right? There are kind of phases of development, but the way that you get through these like step function changes into new phases of cognitive development in terms of thinking like Vygotsky is that somebody who's just passed or meets you just past the edge of your comfort level can help pull you in to that next phase. And I think that that's what happens with really good mentorship. But I also think that there are children who are eager to push the boundaries and they grow faster. And now you can take that too far. You can take the analogy too far as well, but you can take your own development too far too fast. And so one of the crucial things I want to say about this is that this idea exists on a, on a U-curve. So there is the person who won't challenge themselves at all and doesn't have enough exogenous challenge to get them to the place where they've gotten to this event horizon and started to push the boundaries at all. So there really is no growth or development in that process. Then you have the person who people might even be telling them, you need to slow down, you're not ready for this. And they're just pushing, pushing, pushing too far, too fast, too soon. You can imagine a clinician in this predicament where they just are going headstrong into something they don't understand in a sophisticated enough manner. And yet, despite other people's exclamations that they slow down and take themselves a little bit less seriously, perhaps, or or more seriously, depending on the context, and they don't, they are at risk of hurting somebody or hurting themselves in the long run if they can't sustain this and they end up falling out or failing out or whatever the case is. Point being, if you allow yourself to be pushed past the edge ever so slightly of your current level of development and you slowly and steadily push the edges, the boundaries of your own development appropriately, and you stay within this sort of middle range somewhere, which wherever that's appropriate for you is, is a personal endeavor, you're going to grow faster and bigger, so to speak, than I think you even realize. And if you wait for that master mentor to take you there, they might be waiting for you somewhere, but really great mentorship is hard to find. If you find it, you should cling to it. But despite great mentorship, you have to be able and willing to do this for yourself too. There is a nurse scientist that I am extremely fond of, a friend of mine who is now at Case Western Reserve University School of Nursing, this is Dr. Stephanie Griggs. 
Stephanie is wonderful. She's brilliant. I have a lot of really great nurse scientist friends now, but Stephanie has been very charitable with her knowledge and her mentorship, even despite not being located at the program that I have been fortunate enough to study at. And one of the, th the reasons that I am talking about this topic, albeit kind of tangential or orthogonally rather, is because of a conversation that she and I had where we talked about why more graduate nursing students are not applying for F31 grants, for example. And it doesn't have to be an F31. It could be that maybe they're not a nursing graduate student anymore. Maybe they're a, a postdoctoral fellow someplace and they're, they could be applying for F32s or whatever the case may be. It doesn't so much matter. The point is that I think to some degree people are afraid of their own feelings of being an imposter. And I totally understand why. As I talked about a little bit earlier, it's a very disconcerting place to be. Academia is, for those just getting in, it's a perpetual feeling of not being good enough. There is an infinite amount of information out there for us to learn or to pursue. And while that's the exciting part, it's also the part that will keep you forever, always feeling not good enough. And that's because you never can be good enough. But that's actually okay, because your goal shouldn't be to be, to meet some external standard of what some other person considers good enough necessarily. I mean, clearly there are external rewards and standards that you have to meet for certain things. But my point is that internally, I think you should look at what's just on the border, what's on the horizon, and work toward that thing. Push yourself to do the things to get you to that event horizon, so to speak, not to belabor a terrible analogy too much here. And then once you've arrived there through struggle and multiple failures in all likelihood, which is fine, you will have learned something tremendously valuable. And maybe you get there with a little bit of help from your peers, because you will learn a lot from your peers in graduate school, maybe even more than your mentors per se, in some ways, because you spend a lot more time with them and most of your peers are going to be brilliant. And either way, you're going to, you're going to be there at some point. You can either use this sort of zone of proximal development idea, both internally and through mentorship externally to catalyze your development or this sort of slow, progressive, over extremely long periods of time development to get there may or may not occur for you. And that could be okay, too. There is a kind of value judgment embedded in here on my end, which is to say that if you're the kind of student who has potential to be a great academic, you should take the catalyst approach to get there. You don't have to. But I think that you have a limited amount of time to do the work that you're, if I may be so bold as to say, destined to do, that if you don't get there sooner rather than later, you run the risk of never getting exactly where you could be. 
and you deprive the world of your potential brilliance and your growth, which is more important. It's not so much that there's this magnificent end point that you're going to arrive at at someday as some like enlightened scholar. While that is possible, I suppose, it's really more about your developmental process, your journey to getting there. And I know that's this belabored cliche that it's about the journey and the process, yada, yada. But I mean it genuinely. You are already on a pathway to someplace. And it's, I'm not suggesting that that place is an end point specifically. So much as I'm saying that the process you're taking now if you lean too hard into your imposter syndrome, may get you there or, or may advance your journey, let's say. But it might take 10 times as long. And maybe you're never able to do the things that you could be doing along that pathway if you were to push yourself just a little more. And I think that TLDR, you know, takeaway nugget of this vlog for those listening who are still listening is don't expect that some magical threshold will occur by taking some class. The classes might be important to at least prime your ability to understand later, but you have to have enough courage in yourself as a young academic to be able to step outside the bounds of what's considered normal just a little to the zone of proximal development with or without the help of an excellent mentor and do things that you don't feel quite ready for yet exactly and understand that that's okay. A little bit of hesitation and skepticism on your part is healthy, but so much that it paralyzes you that you can't actually do things like write an F grant is not okay if that's what you want to do. Because what's the worst that can happen? You get denied, but you've learned how to write a grant, a big grant, an important one, and you have the foundation for something to take you into future work. Maybe it's what you end up using for your postdoctoral training. Maybe it sets you up for the next idea. Maybe it's its own zone of proximal development for you that primes you for an even better idea later, which is a total play on what you did initially, but it, it sets you up for that key proposition later. Maybe what you write ends up being the thing that you study for your dissertation. And you had no idea what you wanted to do for your dissertation. But if you didn't write that, you would never know. And finally, you have expert feedback from project officers. You have expert feedback, more importantly, or not more importantly, but importantly, from expert reviewers on the panel who've reviewed your grants. You are forced to find mentors, both within the School of Nursing that you're at perhaps, or the College of Nursing, and maybe expand your horizons for mentorship elsewhere because you tend to have to have people on your team with uh, expertise that aligns with your different development and training goals. What I'm getting at here is that by 
pushing yourself slightly outside the realm of what you feel currently comfortable with, you'll grow in an exponential number of ways that you didn't expect. And even if you fail, you will have succeeded. And if you are appropriate, and that you are the only one who can define appropriate here, enough in your endeavor that you know what is a realistic and, and safe place for you to push to in that zone of proximal development, then I think that you'll be pleasantly surprised at how rapidly you develop and where you have the possibility of being able to take your career so early on.